Brother Mr. Albert McShane. I want to read in the little book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. Chapter 8 of Nehemiah, and reading at verse 14. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booze in the feast of the seventh month. Now you notice at verse, uh, verse 17 in the middle of the verse, For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day, had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. I slip over to chapter 13. Verse 1. On that day they read in the book of Moses in the, the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonites and the Moabites should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water. I want to slip over into the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11. Those well-known verses that we often hear read, and look at verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now, uh, verse 26, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show or proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now go back, please, to chapter 7. These verses were referred to on Lord's Day. Uh, look at verse 15. This is that uh, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called you to peace. Now look at verse 20. Let every man abide in the same calling, wherein he was called. Now verse 27. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I spare you. That, I think, will do for reading. <clears throat> there are some times when one gets up to speak, they have... A kind of thrill in their message because it, even nobody else enjoys it. The speaker usually tries to enjoy it himself. But tonight I have some weighty matters in my mind that I haven't been too happy about, but still I feel responsible, as you've just been hearing, to pass on what I feel is needed. Sometimes what is needed is not always the most pleasant thing to express or think about. First of all, we want us to see the importance of attention to the Word of God. It's marvelous to think how long the nation of Israel could slip on 
and somehow not pay particular attention to what had been clearly written in the, the earlier part of the Bible. So that God had given them instructions, but these had been glanced over. They had never noticed them. So that even from the days of Joshua, right on till the time when the, uh, the temple had been built and when Nehemiah uh, and when Ezra was coming and, and Nehemiah to get things into order, bringing to mind, of course, that great subject of restoration that we were thinking about in the early part of the day. Was it not sad that here was a simple instruction? Nobody could question it. It was very clear to them. It wasn't that it was uh, conceived or in any way difficult to understand. But they just never noticed it. You see, they hadn't paid particular heed to what was written. Now you will notice that the two subjects that are mentioned, now I'm not going to go into the details, as you'd know I wouldn't have time, but the two great subjects that were neglected are very important in our day. Because in the first one, they were forgetting their pilgrim character. You can see that. Because, you see, it was bringing them back to the time when they were traveling through the wilderness. And when they had to sleep in tents. They got into nice seed houses, as you can see from the book of Ezra, the, uh, from the book of Ezra, and, uh, or from the prophet. You can see that they were in nice, comfortable homes. And they wouldn't think of getting uh, out of your house and, and leaving your home in a nice, comfortable bed and going and... and, and pitching birds and making these temporary shelters along, along the side of the, the road or in the fields. They thought that was ridiculous. But you see, here's a, here, here's a time, and they're starting to read it. And they're just taking it as it read. They might have tried if they were in our day. You see, there are so many clever men amongst us sometimes they could nearly reason the Bible away altogether. And they would have got some excuse and said, Oh, well, you know, that was just meant to be figured if it was only meant to be illustrative. It didn't mean you to literally get out of your house and go and put up a, a bird and go and live in it. You see, there always is the danger that we would forget that we are not here to stay. And God would have us, as it were, to turn aside from the world and its things and really become aware of the fact that we're only pilgrims in this world. Possibly, I think maybe uh, uh, our brother Mr. Hutchison, I think, would agree with this, that there's not the stress in our public ministry now on the pilgrim character of the believer that the older preachers used to tell us. There was one man in particular, now some of you don't remember him, you're not all on the road as long as me, but some of you don't remember, but the late Mr. Willie Rogers, he would nearly always have, in some way or other, brought into his ministry a pilgrim character, and mind you, he lived it. It wasn't just that he gave it out in the Bible. He lived very humble in his home. He lived in a very humble way. And he could afford to do it. And he would constantly bring home to us with a, a forcefulness that would stricken my young mind. And that is this, that we're not here to stay. I know you like a nice home. And they're not getting any cheaper in Northern Ireland. I hope they're even better over in Wales, where our brother comes from. But they're getting frightsome to me. I get lost when I see these big figures. But at the same time, they're getting very difficult. And then you get the nice things in them. And you get very comfortable. And you know, before you know where you are, you're just as well off as the world things. And maybe you're just trying to enjoy it as much. You'd nearly think that we have no home to go to. And that we're only step, stepping through, as it were. Picking our steps through a defiling world. May the Lord help us now, really help us, to take a note of what's written. 
your pilgrims and strangers, and so on. The next note that I want us to think about, and I hope you won't agree with, disagree with me in it either, and that is this, that uh, without going into the passage in detail, as you know, we've no time for that, but the emphasis that's not out in chapter 13, they began to read, and they saw that there was a mixture, and they had given up their separation. Now I go back over those older men that I'm talking about. You could never hardly have gone to a conference, but somebody took up the subject of separation in some way or other. They taught us separation from the world and its follies and its nonsense. They taught us distinctly separation from the world in its religious aspect. And so we were pilgrims and strangers in the world, religiously as well as in other ways. You see, here's this mixing up in marriage and so on. We, we don't want to go into it. And they were beginning to speak a double language. And uh, you see, they were mixing up with the, the people that were the enemies of the nation at its birth. Look, brother, the world was an enemy of our best friend. That's the one who died at Calvary. And the world hasn't changed. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing if we were embracing and hugging to our bosom the very word that nailed my blessed Lord to Calvary? We often repeat what I heard another brother say, that Paul fell out with the world over the cross and he never made it up again. And I'm afraid the danger is now that we begin to make it up again. And nearly somehow or other, there's a notion in the back of the mind, if we could make the assembly a wee bit more like the religious world, and fit a wee bit closer to its ideas, it would be to its benefit, and we'd become more attractive. Now, that's not the attraction of the assembly. Now, don't forget that. Before I started to preach, I think I was about 15 years. See, before I started to preach, I don't know if you think I've started yet or not, but I was trying to start. I'm doing a wee bit. I was only a young man when I come up onto the Easter platform, uh, some, some years ago. But what, what, what I, I do think of was this. I'm deeply thankful that not one believer sat behind during those years that I was in the assembly or came into fellowship. All you needed to do was bring them once. Look, brother, not the attraction of an assembly. I don't want to be unkind. Don't you be thinking that your big building will draw the people. Don't you think that because that you, you have good singing that that will draw the people? You bring them to a company where the power and presence of God is and their very hearts of a believer will say, well, that's where the Lord is. And that's where I ought to be. Now, that's the attraction. That's the attraction of God's assembly. And remember, it's in separation from the world. I know it's nice to sing, take the world, but give me Jesus. And we sing lovely hymns about separation, and those men who wrote the hymns, it cost them a good deal more than it's costing us in our day and generation. There are two spheres that I want us to speak about now. This is where I'm not just so happy about what I'm saying, that's why I wasn't in any hurry getting up. Uh, I want us to think of big changes that have come into the north of Ireland over the past 70 years. Now, you men don't believe this, but you need to think about it particularly in connection with the Lord's Supper. Maybe you didn't know that. See, as you all know, 
We don't claim to have great gifts or anything like that. I was brought up in the country, as you all know, in a simple meeting. I was greatly indebted to those older men that God had raised up and were gifted men. Gifts that far excels anything that we'll ever reach in our day and generation. There's no doubt about that. I didn't meet them all, but I met some of those dear old men. And I listened to them as a boy and tried to take in what they were teaching. You see, what? What? Now listen carefully. If you were at the average conference meeting, very many brethren referring to the Lord's Supper, they'll say that we meet as priests to give God his portion. That is a worship meeting. We mustn't call God our Father, and you must never think of reading the Scriptures, and you must never, never, never attempt to preach about the Lord's Supper. We have reached the stage for that practically covering the most of Northern Ireland. Now, what's written? That's what I want to get at. Maybe we should have a wee look at what's written and what those older men believe that I'm referring to. We'll mention some of their names maybe before we're finished. I want us to be stirred up to realize what's written. It'll maybe surprise some of you to know that there. Lord's Supper is mentioned in the Gospels. It's mentioned in the Acts. And it's detailed for us in the passage I read part of in 1 Corinthians 11. Now you put your ear to it if you can. And in not one of those passages does the word worship occur. Not one. Secondly, I want you to hear this that you read the same passages over in detail, very thoughtfully now. And priesthood is never mentioned in one of them. Did you watch what's written? And then you read them again, and you come to 1 Corinthians 13. And you discover that when you gather to remember the Lord, you preach, proclaim, whatever word you like to use, the Lord's death. In other words, you're preaching at the Lord's Supper. In the Bible, that's what's written. Oh, so some never heard that. Look at that. For we go, we don't bother bringing the Bible on a Sunday morning. We never look at it. We never mention Nobody ever preaches in our remembrance meeting. You see, when I came into the assembly, of course, we were all country people. We didn't know anything down there. But the brother would never have thought of remembering the Lord without reading about him and saying a word about it. Never would have thought of that. I go to meeting after meeting after meeting in the north of Ireland. The Bible's never left it. You'd nearly think it should have no place whatever at the remembrance meeting. Now remember those old men that I'm referring to. Without exception, they all knew what it was to minister before the breaking of bread, to speak on the Lord Jesus on his death. Are we losing out on that? A young brethren can go to here, there, and everywhere to preach the gospel. You never notice that you have that same word used in connection with the Lord's Supper. Please keep that in mind now. And have an exercise about that. And know what to say and how to say it. And you say, but, but no, look, 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 man, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hey, we come to give God his portion. And where did you read that? We don't come to get anything. Now, we don't want anybody to get up and give practical ministry. You know right well we have no thought of that. People more sensible than that. No, no, dear soul. Let us be wise. 
We should know how to use our Bible in the remembrance of the Lord, to read about them and preach about them and sing about them. But you see, I thought we met as priests. Well, did you? Tell me this. When did you read about a priest meeting in the Old Testament? No such thing that I can find in either Old or New Testament as priests meeting together. Now, I may be wrong, but you can put me right. I'm sure I'll get plenty of correction tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow night they'll put me right on all these points. But you see, I'm, I'm old-fashioned now. You hear me? I can't help being old-fashioned. And I was taught by men that knew your Bible now. Don't you forget that. I mightn't know much myself, but they knew. And I appreciated that. I've been at the Remembrance Meeting when Mr. Rogers would have read a word and spoke on the person of Christ. I've been at Remembrance Meetings when Mr. Campbell would have done it. And when Mr. McCracken would have done it. All those men that were leading men in my earlier day. They all knew what it was to use their Bible on the Lord's Day. Can you use yours, brother? Can you turn out a thought or two fresh about the person of Christ to help the memory of the saints and the person who died at Calvary? Then again, the common phrase we hear nowadays is, "Well, you come to give and not to you come to give and not to, to receive." And you know the very thing the Lord said to them. He says, "Now listen carefully." He says, "You take, you take, you take this bread. What did He give them to them?" Now here's the next big one. I want this very thoroughly into our minds. Now I know you're not going home happy with us, but you do a bit of thinking, won't you? But one thing's sure, even a man is wrong, if he makes you think he's doing you a good turn. But you'll always turn over the scriptures and yet later be convinced that you're right or else you'll be convinced you're wrong. The, the, the point I, I, I want to get at to is this, that the whole stress is... Now listen carefully. This advancement that we have got in my day, like it didn't come for a while, that was maybe 20 years or so, say, before it did advance very far. And that is that it's more important to tell God at the Lord's Supper, what he has found in his Son, and what, God, what Christ has done for the Father is more important than what he has done for us. Hmm? Well, you see, that sounds good. That's lovely. Isn't that sublime? Isn't that high? Ah, but what's written? Well, you better watch what's written. Didn't you remember when Jesus the Lord was passing out the emblems? He says, it's for you. This is my body which is given for you. Surely he wanted them to think. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Don't you think, dear brother, you have risen to great heights because you can give up your thanksgiving at the end of it, never mention what Christ did for you? And never even mention the cross? For you know in some of those meetings you don't mention the cross till a certain period in the remembrance meeting. And if some of us couldn't be right started to give thanks, but the first thought that dawns up on our minds, we're not only here to remember a great person, but we're to remember one who died for me. Oh, dear friend, I'd have been in hell forever for him. Only for him. I hope we'll appreciate him. That he died for me. How much is somebody you're, you're a wee bit schoolish, uh, childish in your thinking? You're not half on with your Bible the way you should be. Have you never heard about the burnt offering? And you'd hear the next big preacher, he'd come out and say, wasn't it all for God? A downright contradiction of Scripture. But he doesn't know it. For the burnt offering was for the man who offered it. That he might get atonement. Are you clear on that? That he might find atonement. That he might find acceptance with God. 
Now, says somebody, what is the difference between the sin offering, we'll say, and the burnt offering? In the sin offering, a man looked at the victim, he says, he's dying for my sins. In the burnt offering, a man looked at the offering, he says, he's dying for me. Hmm? And do you never think that to be your brother and sister at the Lord's Supper? I hope you'll never forget it, and that this message will change things a wee bit in the north of Ireland. For if I could get the whole thing back again to where it was, we'll say, 50 years ago, I'd be deeply thankful. Could you not get back to the fact that the one I take the bread off and take the cup in memory off, I'm doing it with this deep thought in my heart. My blessed Lord, he died for me. Oh, he died for me. I appreciate it. Well, so somebody, I think you're a wee bit out. I suppose I am. But we'll try it again. There's one verse in the New Testament that to my mind, and as you know, I'm shallow in my thinking, to my mind gives us the insight into the real meaning of the burnt offering. Now, will you listen to it very carefully? Walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and given himself for us, as an offering of a sweet-smelling savour. Now, I think that's very close on the burnt offering. I may be wrong on that. That is, Christ is a burnt offering. Ah, but did you notice? Paul knows how to write it. He says it's for us. That's for us. That is to say, now when you get this well into your mind, do your best to take it in. That God felt, uh, God smelt a sweet-smelling savour from the death of Christ, because that death was for poor sinners. Now mind you, that's the proper understanding of it. That is, there was something sweet to the Almighty in the provision that Christ had made when he died for sinners upon the cross. Now, you need to think these things out. Look what's written there. Look what's written. Now, I think I should leave that. You don't want too much of that. We'll come now to what is a very difficult passage in many people's minds. Now, I have been, as you know, coming to conferences for a few years. There are likely others here that were here before me. I don't know. I, I don't know who was in the audience. But I've been listening a fair wee bit to ministry. I don't think I can ever remember any brother in those years that I'm attending conferences, ever preaching from the seventh chapter of Second First Corinthians. Now, I've heard quotations from it. We heard it on Lord's Day. We heard bits of it. But mind you, it's well to know it's written. Now, I didn't write it, so don't scold me. But I would like to read it and see what Paul wrote. If you go down that chapter, it's amazing how much is contained in it. And we never hear it named at conferences. Nobody ever mentions it. They might even give a little quotation from it here and there, but nobody will take it up and deal with it. And I suppose I, I wouldn't dare to do it uh, in the time that's at my disposal. All I want to mention are a few points. Quite often we hear from our conference platforms, and I'm aggrieved on it, that nothing but death can end the marriage bond. That's stated without any hesitation, and that's a soft contradiction of the Bible. The Lord Jesus didn't believe that. Paul didn't believe that, and of course I needn't tell you, Moses didn't believe that. And those older men that I'm referring to, I'll mention some of their names maybe later on, they didn't believe that. And the poor creature standing before you, he doesn't believe that. Now when you look at your what's written, I what's written. The apostle deals with the married people, and he tells them how to behave with one another. Now you don't hear many talking about that. Then he thinks of the problem that would easily have arisen at Corinth. 
and that is a heathen man would be married to a to a, a Christian lady. Or a Christian lady would get saved and her heathen man or a Christian man would get saved and his heathen wife. Now says Paul, if the Christian finds it hard to stay and he go and he or she goes away, he says, Let them come back again, don't let them stay long. That can be overcome. Then he goes to the next step. He says, now the heathen man goes away, or the heathen woman goes away, the unsaved, the unbelievers, for they're being idolaters. He says, yes, they'll not come back. You needn't be thinking of that. They'll not go to live in isolation the way they would in Northern Ireland, you see, if they got separated. They'll soon find somebody else. Now he says, the marriage bondage is over now. That ends the marriage. And that's what it says. I didn't read it. Oh, he says, I don't believe a word of that. Well, you better look at it. He says, the brother and sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now, you listen carefully. I know you don't like it, but there it is. The only bondage in the passage is the bondage of marriage. And right where you can see it. Art thou bound unto a wife? And do you know what he says? Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. That is, you don't kill your wife. Yeah, we don't yet believe that. If death's the only way of ending a marriage, what did Paul tell them not to be loosed? You see, we're living in a day when marriage is very slightly looked on. Dear brother, I wish you'd waken up and see the world we're in. Before we know where we are, we're going to be almost back on heathen conditions. Because, you see, Paul was writing to the Corinthians and corruption was spreading abroad and we're going to have to face these difficulties in the north of Ireland. We don't like it. But there it is. They tell me that about one in three homes in certain areas are upset in one way or another. Now he says, if the unbeliever depart, let him depart. He can't keep him. And the brother and sister is not under bondage in such cases. That is, the bondage of marriage is over as far as they are concerned. Then he goes further down. And he turns to a man and he says, art thou bound unto a wife? That is a married man. Don't be forsaken to be loosed. I hope you dear Christians are listening to this. If Paul were here tonight, he would tell you, now, if you're married, you stay that way. And don't you be putting away your wife. And don't be doing anything that would mean an upset of your marriage life. Live properly and in the fear of God and, and faithful to one another. That's what's expected. You don't expect Christians to become fornicators or anything like that. Then again, he says, yes, but if thou wert loose from a wife. Oh, so somebody, that means a man is not married. And now you just are wise. Don't be silly. Art thou bound unto a wife? Art thou loose? Seek not to the loose and says, if thou art loose. There was likely quite a number of currents and they were already divorced. You say, what are you going to do with them? Oh, we wouldn't touch them. They couldn't come into the meeting. Oh, no, no, you couldn't touch them. No, but Paul knew what to do. And Paul knew what to write. And Paul knew what to write. You see, Paul could have used, art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to believe that is, don't be divorced. And then he could equally have written the next statement, Art thou free from a wife? He didn't do that. He wrote, Are thou loose from a wife? Now you look what he wrote. Ah, so somebody slipped up. He missed the pen. He has used the word free there in the chapter, but he didn't use it here. Did you notice that? Now that word loose, in case you don't believe me, if you're very grammatical in your studies and so on, you'll find it in the 13th of Luke, I think's the passage, 
where the woman was loosed from her infirmity. Now that doesn't mean that she never had it. But she was bent away over. But she was loosed from it. So here he's addressing the man that is divorced. And he's speaking of the man who has been loosed from his wife. You see, of course they would have known what he's reading. They knew what way to read this. For they had these problems in their meeting. Now listen carefully. You just go through it now when you get home. Don't be chopping up me now like a bulldog and saying that man's a mad man. His old age has beaten him and he's off through. You just check it up. I'm not giving you anything that hasn't been well thought out. You needn't be one bit afraid. That verse, that verse I quoted from the gospel, the word is identical in spelling to the one that's used in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Arthur lose from a wife. Now he says, seek not a wife. That is, throughout this chapter, as you know, he's always advancing that the single life would be the most, most advantageous. It would be uh, most beneficial because it leaves a man more free and he has less responsibility. And it saved the woman from the hardships of married life in those lands and in those days. Now, don't forget that. He actually uses the word tribulation to imply that married life can have very severe trials, and all of us know that in one way or another. Then he goes a bit further. Now, he says, if you're loose from a wife, don't be seeking a wife. But he says, if thou marry, and he's speaking to the one man, if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. Now, to tell an ordinary man that if he marries, he hasn't sinned, that would be like telling him he hasn't sinned if he takes his breakfast. Because there's no such thing as ever in anybody's mind thinking that it's a sinful thing for a man to marry. But to tell a divorced man that if he marries, he hasn't sinned, Paul's telling him something that he needs to know. Because he might wonder. And then the next little phrase is dealing with another side of things. And he says, now, what about the, 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 the single sister? What about the, uh, what about the virgin? She might think that by getting married, she's losing something of her virgin purity. And she's going to come into defilement. But he says, no, she hasn't sinned either. So he's assuring her that she's free to sin. Later on, of course, he deals with the father and his girl. And if she is old enough to be married, he can make up his mind as to whether he allows her to marry or whether he doesn't. He decides that. You know, in our country, it's the girl decides herself nearly who shall marry and all that. But in those eastern lands, and many lands to the day, the missionaries will all tell you what I'm preaching. It's just normal in some countries that the father decides the wife and so on. And it's a parental thing, not an individual thing at all. Anyhow, he says, now, if you give your daughter in marriage, that's, that's good enough. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you hold her back, leave her better because you'll save her from the, the, the sorrows and troubles of married life. Then finally he turns to a widow. And she hasn't any father to control her. And you say, well, who, who will she marry? What will she do? Well, he says, now it should be better if she stayed the way she is, because again it will save her from the hardships of those days. But he goes a little further. And he says, yes, she must marry in the Lord. That is, it's not her father that controls her now, but she's under a higher authority. She can only marry in the Lord. You say, I've never heard stuff like that in a conference in my life. No, you won't hear it again. Because I'd likely be gone before ever I preach this in this world again. You see, those old men that you're talking about, they never, they never talk like that. Not at all. I'm 55 years speaking at conferences. Maybe you don't believe that. And I've never preached on it before. I never likely will again. But now, friend, the reason is this. Let's get down to it. We're going to be faced with these things. My ministry may sound strange to you, 
because you don't want it and don't want these line of things to be thought about. But we're going to face it to your children in the north of Ireland. And we're going to find ourselves up against these difficulties with people. Ah, says somebody. Supposing somebody, and this is my last point, supposing somebody has been divorced. And then they're married. And they come to our gospel meetings. I could tell you a brother's name, but I don't mention anybody that's alive for you would get into trouble. But he's given out tracts, and he came to a bungalow. He says, in that bungalow there, there's a man and a wife living, and they're divorced and remarried. If I call and give them a tract, they might come to the meetings. And if it happened to get saved, what do I do with them if they ask for fellowship? I've been difficulties right away. And he says, if I push them into the meeting, they'll just be them and me in the meeting, maybe the rest would all go. <laughs> so he says, I'll be in great difficulties. So we thought, maybe we'd better not give them a track and not invite them. Is that right, my brother? You all happy about that? I'm not. Look, brother, I want to tell you something. You can't select the people that go and see him. And he has picked up people from the lowest ranks of society. And indeed, as a brother put it to me in Bellamino some time ago, he said, so see, if Paul had expected everybody to be up to the standard that we would expect in our day, he never could have got the assembly started at Corinth. He couldn't. Then comes the big question, if they get saved, and they seek for fellowship, supposing I was on the oversight, what would you do? Well, I would take the Bible. And I would say, now that you're called in that condition, according to my Bible, you stay where you are. That every man, wherein he is called, they're in a bind with God. They have no grounds to divorce each other because there's no unfaithfulness involved. Well, then you say, what next? I would quote from another verse. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. According to that verse, you're a new creation. You're a new creation altogether. Old things are passed away. That's not old practices. It's standing. It's passed away. And all things have become new. I quote them that verse. Then I quote them another verse. Him that is cleansed, call not their common or unclean. Him whom God has cleansed, call not their common or unclean. If God has washed away a man's sins, we've got to leave it there. We can't go back over his past. But that doesn't solve the problem. I would likely have to turn and tell him, or tell her, now, brother, there's not a scripture in the world to keep you out of fellowship, but there are a number of brethren in this assembly, and we're in all happy fellowship, and if we were to bring you in, they would be offended, and they wouldn't agree, because they don't know the Bible the way I know it. They haven't followed what's written. You say, what will you do? You just have to tell them, and you'll have to go to some assembly where they do know the Bible, and where they will act on the scriptures, and where they will receive it. And you say, yes, I've never heard something like that in a conference in the life before. And I tell you, you won't hear it again. You'll hear it quite maybe tomorrow. And then as a chance to overturn it and throw it up. You look what you The way the Corinthians did. They just read it. You know, they didn't put any trust into it. And when they come to, when the New Testament people come to the word for the case, they didn't take them like a prophet or something like that. That's nonsense. That's the devil would go water with any grace of God. But the man here at the conference, who was here, I don't know where he was, and he gave an address on divorce. And he tried to make out that fornication in Matthew, in the Matthew 19 passage that only referred to the unmarried before they were married. And I wrote him and asked him, could he tell me one Greek scholar that agreed that fornication didn't include adultery. 
He didn't answer me the first letter. I wrote him the second thing. He didn't answer me. He answered me other things, but not that. I wrote him, I think, the third thing. And he had to reluctantly tell me he couldn't find it. No, dear show. You can look your Greek. You can look your English dictionary. You can look your Greek concordance up. And you can find the original word. And you'll never get any of them to stay. But fornication. Why did the second word not be the same as the first one? Adultery. Because it's the more embracive term. All adultery is fornication. But all fornication is not adultery. Now, I want to illustrate that. I think I want to help you, dear child, of course, because I've been up in these things and faced with them. And you didn't be thinking that I'm just talking nonsense all the time. You know right well that thieving and covetousness are in the same list of sins. Now, everybody knows that when a thief is caught, he's dealt with as covetous. But while thieving is covetousness, all covetousness is not thieving. Now, while adultery is involved in fornication, all fornication is not adultery. Sodomy is not, not adultery, but it's fornication. And I could go on with other names I don't want to mention. Now, these are things we need to... They're all I'm getting home to now. Will you listen? They found it written. You say, now, why, Maxine, do you believe that? Are you going back in your old day? No, no. Those old men that I respected, Mr. Host, Mr. John Ritchie, Mr. Willie Rogers, Mr. W.J. McClure, you can go over and listen as long as you like. They everyone believe what I believe. But there's someone I never heard them preaching it. No, you never heard me preaching it. And I hope you'll never hear me again at it. May the Lord reach our hearts and enable us to read his word with thoughtfulness. Chapter 2 of 297. 